Hello and thank you for choosing to listen to this week's message from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Milford, Alabama. We're currently walking through our Redeemer series in the book of Ruth. Our prayer is that this time in God's word would challenge and encourage your heart by seeing Christ the Redeemer as our restorer and provider. God bless. If you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and open to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We're finishing Ruth this morning, and so uh, I'm thankful for James who stood in for me last week when I was, uh, when I'd fallen ill. He, he did it on really short notice. I called James Saturday night at 7, and, and whenever I call Brother James, it's usually not a good thing, because uh, we usually just text or FaceTime or something. When I call, he said he knew what it was about before I even answered the phone. So uh, anyway, James, thank you, man, for stepping in and, and preaching the Word. Uh, but we are finishing Ruth today, Ruth chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22 in, in just a moment. Uh, you know, with most stories, if a character name is in the title of the story, uh, you'd expect that character to be the protagonist or the main character of the story, but that's not always the case. Uh, you know, I was racking my brain trying to think of a movie or a, or a book or something where this is the case, and I thought of a couple, but one that you probably know a lot about is The Wizard of Oz. You know, the story's not really about The Wizard of Oz. The wizard is, doesn't come into the story until close to the end. Who's the story about? So Dorothy, right? She's the main protagonist, and you would even say that it's more about the Tin Man and about the Lion and about the Scarecrow than it is about the Wizard. But the Wizard comes in at the very end, and the story is made important because of the Wizard, but still, his involvement is not really the main thing in the story. The main thing in the story is following this little girl named Dorothy, and that's true of this story, too. The story rises and falls on the involvement of the Wizard in the plot, just like this story rises and falls on the involvement of a little woman named Ruth. Now the main character in the book of Ruth isn't Ruth. That's really strange, but the main character in the book of Ruth is Naomi. And so we started the book with Naomi, and we're going to finish the book with Naomi this morning. Since the beginning of this book, it really has been about her, and even more than that, it's been about God's hand in her life, in Naomi's life. Her story turns from tragedy into triumph because of the hand of God. The main theme of the book of Ruth is the main theme of the Bible, and that's that our God saves His people for their good, but primarily for His own name's sake. To make much of Himself, God does what He does for the good of His people, but also for His own renown. Keeping the main thing the main thing. And that's what we're doing today. I'll say it this way, that you exist to glorify God by enjoying who He is for all of eternity. That's true today, and it will be true in glory for the rest of your existence. And we see that even in the book of Ruth. So let's look at it, okay? Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. This is what the Word of God says. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. 
They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You know, we've only been in Ruth. Uh, this will be week six. And so we're finishing a six-week series walking through this book. And the advantage, you know, this wasn't like John or when we walked through First Corinthians. We were there for like over a year. And so the advantage of being in a book a short time, there's advantages of being in a book for a long time. But one of the advantages of being in a book for a very short time is that the beginning of the story isn't so distant of a memory. Same was true of Jonah, is that you remember the beginning pretty frequently or pretty freshly because it wasn't that long ago. In the beginning of the story, story, it really began in tragedy. Naomi and her husband Elimelech, who eventually would pass away, they fled Israel for Moab, which we talked a lot about that, that Moab was the land of the enemy, which means that they were leaving Israel in sin. She then lost her husband Elimelech. She also had two sons. Both of them died, and they both left widows themselves. And so it wasn't just the loss of these family members and, the, and even the famine that was the tragedy, but there's a great cultural tragedy that goes along with losing her husband. And that is not just the sad of death, but the sadness of her family's extinction without a male heir. And that's one of the big over, you know, seeing principles or, or, or themes in this book is that in the, in the Middle East, in the Near East, ancient Near East, having a male heir was absolutely vital. There was little more shameful for an aging Israelite woman than to not have a male heir to continue on her heritage, in Elimelech's heritage. And yet, as great of a tragedy as famine and death are, the great tragedy of this story is that Elimelech and Naomi's family would be extinct. It's sad. And it's the saddest theme in this book, as sad as those other things are. The fact that Naomi was now aged and widowed, that she was now childless without the prospect of having children because of her circumstances, that was the real tragedy. And yet, we read that God's hand was involved. But the ending of the story, while it began in great tragedy, it ends with Naomi being restored. It's a poetic story. It's a reversal of the introduction. Tragedy to triumph. And towering over this story of this poor widow is the gigantic influence of the hand of God orchestrating all of these events. Listen, even the hurt. Why? For the good of his own, but also for the purpose of his own praise. That's the main thing. It's the main thing in this book, and that's the main thing that I want you to understand in your life. And so if you're taking notes today, the title of our message is very simple. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. The praise of God for your good, for his glory. There's going to be three ways that we're going to see this this morning, keeping the main thing the main thing in this passage. Number one is that blessings exist for God's praise. That blessings exist for God's praise. Blessings exist for God's praise. Central to the finale of this book 
is the praise of the God that has turned Naomi's story from tragedy into triumph. His hand is the center, is center stage in this great resolution that we're going to read about now. Look at verse 13. We're going to walk through this passage together, okay? It's so wonderful, the ending. I want to examine it with you guys this morning. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. And again, that's, that's assuming a lot of things that we already know came before. This great relationship unfolding by God's grace. So now we finally see the, the, the fruition of this. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And check it out. Here we go. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore, by the way, not a daughter, but she bore a son. It's the little details, right? The little details that mean a great deal that God gave her a son. Time has advanced, nine months minimum. In fact, the last time we saw Naomi, who we'll look at in a moment, was when Ruth came back and she said, well, let's wait and see what Boaz does, if he's going to redeem us or not. And so really, I mean, just a few verses have passed, but a lot of time has passed, at least nine months, obviously, because they have a kid. Uh, and this wasn't some miracle that was like a three or four month thing. There's a nine month baby, just like any other baby. And so nine months at least have passed and probably closer to a year since we've seen some of the events that have taken place right before this. And so Boaz and Ruth are now married. And then the big fireworks of the narrative go off. And that is the Elimelech's lineage continues. Naomi has a grandson. Ruth has a son. And Boaz has now fully redeemed the brokenhearted. But I want you to notice something. It's something that we've been talking about throughout this book. Is that Boaz is not the main redeemer in the story. Who does it say gave conception? Look at it again in verse 13. They had relations but look, it is the Lord that gave her conception. Who made this baby, y'all? God made this baby. God intervened. God gave them conception. This child was certainly conceived of human initiative, but more so of divine initiative. This blessing was not a work of Boaz and Ruth, but of God. Yahweh Himself, which it's in all caps, it's the proper name of God, He has brought about a joyous ending to this story. And for this reason, a song of praise is in order, which is what we see in verse 14. The women said to Naomi, okay, now that she has this baby, or her grandson, they say, Blessed be the Lord. Your translation may even say, praise the Lord. That's what that means. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name, the baby's name, be renowned in all Israel. I said this a moment ago, but so much of this story is a great reversal of the events that began the story. When Naomi and Ruth came back without their husbands, deceased husbands, widows themselves, when they came back, do you remember what Naomi said to the same women that are talking to her now? She said, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. What did she say? Call me what? Mara. It means bitter. Call me bitter. I'm not worthy of my own name because I'm not pleasant. I'm bitter. In fact, she didn't just say, I'm bitter within me. She pronounced curses upon God. She said, no, this is God's fault. She says, He brought calamity upon me. He was the author of all my bad things. He brought calamity upon me. But this is the great reversal of that, isn't it? Here, the story is different. Her circumstances are obviously different, as is the light in which Yahweh is painted. The same women who greeted her, a bitter woman at the end of chapter 1, Naomi, they now greet a joyous Naomi. And as a result, they ascribe praise unto God. What they say is, blessed be the Lord. And like I said, it translates, praise be unto God. 
Praise be unto Yahweh. The women in Naomi's life praised God because of the evidence of God in her life. I'm going to say that again. The women praised God because of the evidence of God in Naomi's life. This is a great principle for us, isn't it? What's the principle? That God makes known His favor in your life and in my life so that you and those in your life would join the same chorus of these women. Praise God. Why does God give you blessings? For you to just be glad. For you to just sit on those blessings and say, well, finally I have this thing. No. God gives blessings into your life so that you will join the chorus of the women in this passage. Praise God. And so that the people in your life would join that same chorus. Praise God. Psalm 89 verse 1 supports this. It says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Listen, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. This is what that means. Guys, being a follower of Jesus is intrinsically a commitment to make known His work to all people. This is what that means. That means praising God loudly. (laughs) It means praising God loudly and not just in this room, at work, in your home in your marriage, during your hobbies, wherever you go and whatever you're doing, it means that you are praising God loudly for His evidence in your life. It means praising God loudly for your salvation. It means, like in this passage, praising God loudly for an addition to your family. It means praising God loudly that you have a steady paycheck, that you have freedom to gather with your church, that you have the health to be here. We praise God loudly for those things. Why? Because we understand who they come from. That He's worthy of our praise. I've gotten to the point, and and listen, I'm not saying this in a boastful way. I'm saying that simply, this is a principle that has become a part of me. I mean, when you understand that your blessings are not from inside, but from another source, it changes the way that you respond to questions like, hey man, how's it going? How's it going? How are things going lately? Fine is is fine, but it's not God-glorifying. No kidding, I've gotten to the point when people ask me, how's it going? I just say, man, God has been so gracious. God has just been gracious. And again, I'm not saying that to boast. I'm simply saying this principle should just be part of who you are. How are things going? Man, God has just been so good to my family. we got this going on, and he's just really seen us through that. Fine, just short changes. What an opportunity. That little simple question is to ascribe glory to the one that really gave you what you have. It's more than just fine. God has been gracious. Praise God. We joined that chorus. The goal of your life is to, in all things, make it about the one who gave you life. It means that he is the object of your affections, not merely what He gives, which is the second main thing that I want you to see while we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is, I am made full by God, not by the blessings He gives. I'm made full by God, not by the blessings that He gives. You know, months ago... 
before we even began Ruth, and I began reading and studying this, and it's a good practice to read the book from beginning to end to kind of get a good understanding of what's the main thing here. I didn't just start with one little chunk, started with the whole thing and tried to get a good perspective. And so when I read all of Ruth in, in participation or in anticipation of even this day, I found verses 14 and 15, and I found these and just said, you know what, that is the theme of this book. Verses 14 and 15 are where we need to belong. And so I consider these to be the theme or the key verses of this book. And that's where we get our title from as Redeemer, Restorer, Provider. So I want you to see it. Let's look at verses 14 through 16, but listen very closely to verses 14 and 15 and what it says about what we even titled this walk through Ruth. So the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. There's that chorus who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all Israel, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher or provider of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, that's Ruth, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse." You know, the praiseworthy action. This chorus, like I said, blessed be the Lord. The reason that these women are saying that in verse 14 is that that is anchored in what the women assure that God would do for Naomi. They say, hey, this baby, because of who God is, this baby is going to be a redeemer for you. It means a deliverer, a rescuer. Now, we've already seen that Boaz is that redeemer. But they're saying now this baby is going to be the coming to fruition of that redemption. He's going to finish it. This baby is going to be a rescuer. He's going to be a deliverer for you. Well, that kind of begs the question. Rescuer of what? Deliverer of what? Well, what were Naomi's two problems? Throughout this book, we've seen these things. The two things going on in this passage that she desperately needed. She's without a husband, right? And in in a culture where women didn't work and bring in a, a working, you know, wage, what did she need? Well, for one thing, she needed wage. She needed someone that would take care of her, that would nourish her, provide for her food and home. Well, this baby would be a redeemer of that. He would be a provider. This baby would also be the other problem that she had, her family nearing extinction. Well, we've already seen that. He will be a restorer to you, a restorer of life. There's two ways that we see this, restorer of life, nourisher, provider. That word restorer of life, it literally translates, he will cause life to return to you. I don't know about you, but when I think about someone that doesn't have life, I think of a corpse. You are spiritually, or or you feel mentally, you are a corpse, they're saying to Naomi. But this child will redeem you. He will restore to you the life that you don't have. He will cause life to return to you. Her earlier bitterness and grief was the result of her family's impending extinction. But this child, they're saying, will cause life to return to you. An heir provided. They then say that he'll be a nourisher or a provider. He'll provide food. In your old age, I think of this as funny about this passage in verse 15. It says, he'll be a nourisher of your old age. What that literally translates is, he will be a provider in your gray hairs. <laughs> when you get old, he's going to be feeding you. When you're aged, he's going to be taking care of you. It's a great promise of assurance. The reason that the women know this is because of Ruth, which is what it says in verse 15 also. It says, Your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and that is that number seven is very important. The number seven in God's word is a number of completion, okay? If there were six sons, it would be an incomplete number of sons. They believed that the number seven was like just a complete number. It was a wholesome number. And so if someone has seven sons, and they were really privileged. You have the perfect number of sons. But here's the thing. They're saying something pretty highly about Ruth here, aren't they? This one daughter is worth more to you than the complete number of sons. Why? Because she has given you a true redeemer. It's an interesting thing to say. And why do I point it out? Because Naomi has been made complete by what God has given her in Ruth. And the metaphor of her contentment in what God has given her is what we see in verse 16. So she takes this baby, lays him on her lap, and then she becomes his nurse. Or maybe translated a foster mother. Ruth gives her a position of privilege in taking care of this baby daily. Isn't it just a sweet, sweet ending to this story? It's a neat detail. It's almost, it almost doesn't belong. It doesn't really progress the story. And he just says that, and then she just was content. She took the baby and bounced him on her knee and she became his nurse. I say that because it's very clear in this passage that the object of praise isn't the child, it isn't Ruth, but it's the God who gave both. He is the object of praise in this passage. I think again we see a principle here. That the blessings of God should not lead us to love the gift only, but to more importantly love the God who gave them and consider ourselves daily made full by Him, not by them. God has given you many things. You are very blessed. You're very favored in many ways. But far be it from us to fall in love with the gift rather than the giver of the gift. You know, one of the great errors of our culture of our day is that we have come to a point and, and we mark it under the guise, the veil of the American dream. But we have become enamored by creation rather than creator. We have become idolatrous of creation rather than creator. Every good and perfect gift is from above. But we fall in love with the gift rather than the place that it came from. It's one of the great errors of our day. Fullness does not come from blessings, but from resting in the God who gives them. You come into this world with a God-sized void in your heart, and the only thing that can fill that void is a relationship with God that can fill the longing that is designed within you. No man or woman can fill that void. No relationship can fill that void. No car can fill that void because it's going to be in a junkyard one day. I saw on Facebook someone posted, I'm looking for a way to get rid of this refrigerator because I can't just throw it in my trash can. What do you do with a refrigerator that's broken? By the way, I really don't know. I have no clue what you do with the refrigerator that's broken. Maybe you could tell me after the service. It seems like a pretty big problem to have. You can't just set it outside, I guess. I don't know. But when I read that, I was like, man, it's, it's a funny thing to read because one time, it, once upon a time, that refrigerator gave someone so much joy to have that. That was once a, pardon the opposite pun, but a hot commodity. It gave great fulfillment to someone, but it was vain because that can't fill the void that you have in your heart. Neither can your job because one day you'll burn out. 
Your television, your phone, your stuff, all of that will be in a landfill one day. No amount of likes on a photo or post can fill you because you'll always be left wanting more. No amount of praise from man because you'll always be left feeling empty. When we went to Africa last year, I learned this anew, and I've been to third world countries a number of times, but third world Christians are a different breed because they are so full in Christ. Because here's the thing, church, they got nothing competing with them. And you have everything. And it's competition. And we fall in love with it. And it becomes the object of our worship rather than the God who gave it. God help us for falling in love with the creation rather than the creator. Fullness is found in the creator, not the creation And to see this, listen, I need you to understand, if you possess Christ, don't you understand that you lack nothing? If you have Jesus, you lack nothing. You are rich. You are rich. And he is working overtime for you to see this, and he wanted so desperately for Naomi to see this. Keeping the main thing the main thing. That's it. There's a third way that we see this. Number three, God is at work in more ways than I am aware. God is at work in more ways than I am aware. God is at work in more ways than I'm aware. There's something about this story, sort of an elephant in the room, that you may not have seen and that really is the perfect way to finish our story. It's, it's a little thing that's behind the scenes, but, but it's so big if we would just open our eyes and see it. Guys, there are no meaningless small Bible stories. Do you know that? There are no meaningless and small Bible stories. Noah wasn't just some old guy who built a boat. He became the patriarch of humanity. Abraham wasn't just some old guy who had some kids. He became the faithful father of God's nation. Jacob wasn't just some guy whose name God changed to Israel for the heck of it. He had 12 children who the entire Old Testament and a nation to this day are built upon. Moses wasn't just some random guy God used as a messenger. He became God's agent of salvation, the mouthpiece to his people and he delivered God's law and by the way the first five books of your Bible. Joshua wasn't just Moses' assistant. He was the leader of conquest that God would use to bring his people into a land of promise long long ago. Then suddenly with such a crashing halt of momentum the next thing in the story comes this underwhelming story of two sad struggling nameless fameless widows Naomi and Ruth it doesn't fit it doesn't fit this is a little story of little significance it seems where does this fit into the big picture there are no small meaningless Bible stories but this story does in fact belong with the ones that precede it because the author now tells the long kept secret now revealed in the last verses of this book this is big y'all this is big look at verses 17 through 22 imagine reading this as an Israelite okay think of their heroes here and the women of the neighborhood gave the son the boy a name 
which by the way is a weird practice. We'll just kind of we're just gonna kind of move on, okay? They say a son has been born born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Listen, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. By the way, Salmon's wife was Rahab. There's so much that goes into that that we don't have time to talk about. But Boaz knows all about foreign women being used for God's purposes, which makes total sense why he would marry Ruth. Then Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Naomi and Ruth may have been nameless, but Ruth's great-grandson would not be. Her son Obed would father Jesse, who would one day bring to Samuel the last of his sons, a little guy named David, who would crush a giant, who would win victory for God's people, who would become the king of God's people, who would write tens of thousands of words of your Bible. Last week we saw in verse 11 that the elders of Bethlehem anticipated a hopeful blessing that Ruth will aid Boaz in what it says in verse 11. Hey, you guys are going to to build up the house of Israel. What they meant by that is that you're going to build a nation of God's people. May this be a child that goes and builds God's nation. Well, (laughs) their child would help. But their great-grandson would have a big role in this. David who would build up God's nation. Yes, he would do it as their king. But the greater descendant of David would build up God's people by making them new and establishing his true people. Not a physical nation, but a spiritual one. And the name of that nation is God's church. This story is big. Nameless and fameless widows. But God had a lot going on here. The descendant of Naomi would be like his ancestor Boaz, a redeemer, but not of one family only. The descendant of Naomi would be a restorer of life for the empty, just like Naomi, but not of one person only. The descendant of Naomi would be a king like his ancestor David, but not of Israel only. He's a redeemer, he's a restorer, and he is a king. And who is this descendant? He is Jesus. He is Christ. He is Messiah. How is He a Redeemer? He is a Redeemer because He also is a Deliverer, a Rescuer. How did He accomplish that? He purchased, which is exactly what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi, He purchased you and me if you were in Christ. How did He do that? Because He paid it all. Payment. He was the payment because He died on the cross that you may live. How is He a Redeemer? He redeemed you with His own blood at Calvary. How is He a restorer? He didn't just die for you. He breathed new life for you when He vacated His own gravesite. How is He a restorer? The same way that He went from death to life, He offers you today the opportunity to go from death to life. He's a redeemer in that He paid for you. He's a restorer in that He has breathed new life into you. How is He a king like David? Because of the name of Jesus, today or one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, by the way, main thing, to the glory of God the Father. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. And He's the King of kings. And that is the truth of the Gospel. And that's the main theme that we see in Ruth. All of that started with two sad 
ordinary women struggling to be faithful and loyal to God in their mundane, boring, just to get by, to use it in our terms, paycheck to paycheck, day to day. I want you guys to see something here. God uses the faithfulness of ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary plans. He uses the faithfulness of ordinary people just like you and me to do great, great things. And we're not the ones that accomplish it, but He is. To you, it may just be a generous tip at a restaurant, but to your server, it could be hope. To you, it may just be four little words. I'm thankful for you. But to your coworker, it may breathe life into a depressed heart. To you, it may just be sacrificing 15 minutes of sleep for prayer and scripture, but it may keep you from pitfall that day that will have massive consequences on your life and family. To you, it may just be praying out loud with your kids before bed each night, but it will translate into your child discipling, by the way, your eventual grandchildren. Do you want your grandchildren to follow Jesus? Invest in their 10-year-old parents today. just easy mundane stuff my life is boring yours is too for the most part probably but God uses the boring day-to-day faithfulness of his people to accomplish far from boring things God uses ordinary people who make ordinary faith decisions to do the extraordinary God doesn't require you to change the world he's already done that in Christ We're hitching our wagon to a God that is already doing great things. He's not calling you to change the world. He can do that by himself. He's calling you to keep the main thing the main thing. We're done with Ruth. They're boring people that do boring things, that God did great things through them. Let's join them on the ride, keeping the main thing the main thing. Seeing the blessings that God gives, not as, a mean, or not as an ends, but as a means to an end. The end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's message. We would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m., as we seek to make much of Jesus and love above all else. For more information, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thespringhillbaptist.